Hey, what's up? My name's Ray Stein, and I'm just thinking out loud. What's up? My name is Ray Stein, and today I'm thinking about this Chicago baby that was kidnapped some 55 years ago. And apparently, he was found just recently. This article from MSN News was posted about five hours ago.
So, yeah, we're going to be reading that today. So let's get into it. All right, let's get into this. Chicago baby kidnapped 55 years ago reportedly found. Chicago, a baby mysteriously kidnapped in 1964, may have finally been found, more than half a century later. Chester and Dora Fronzak's son, Paul, was taken from a Chicago hospital when he was just days old. Like, he was literally, had just come out of the womb a few days ago and somebody took him. From the hospital. That's... That would be so hard for... For any parent to hear is that your baby who is just days old was taken from you. Shortly after investigators thought they had found him, but decades later they realized they had the wrong person. KLS-TV investigative reporter George Knapp broke the story on MysteryWire.com. Fronzak is now living in Michigan and has kids of his own who heard about his kidnapping, reports CBS News correspondent Adriana Diaz. His excuse me. His children became convinced that their dad was the real deal. Was the real Paul. They took some tests and tracked it down, Knapp said. Their father, whose DNA matched the baby's, wants to remain anonymous. And there is actually a video, which I'm going to play, that is attached to it. A baby mysteriously kidnapped in 1964 may finally have been found more than half a century later. Chester and Dora Fronzak's son was taken from a Chicago hospital when he was just days old. Shortly after, investigators thought they had found him. But decades later, they realized they had the wrong person. Adriana Diaz reveals how what's believed to be the right person was recently discovered. 55 years after Paul Fronzak's disappearance made headlines, KLES investigative reporter George Knapp says he's been found. Knapp broke the story on mysterywire.com. Fronzak's now living in Michigan and has kids of his own. His children became convinced that their dad was the real deal, was the real Paul. They took some tests and tracked it down. Their father, whose DNA matched the babies, wants to remain anonymous. Imagine what a shock it would be. You're 55 years old. You think you know who you are. Uh, you think you know who your family is. And you suddenly get a, a bolt out of the blue that tells you you're not that guy after all. You're this guy. You were a kidnapped baby. The mystery surrounding Fronzak began in 1964, when a woman posing as a maternity ward nurse told his mother, Dora, that she needed to take the baby to see the doctor. The woman never came back, sparking a massive search by the FBI. One year later, law enforcement officials they... thought they found him when they discovered a boy abandoned in New Jersey with ears shaped like Fronzak's. Fronzak's adopted him, raised him in Chicago. My mom and dad pretty much said, you're our son, we love you, and that's really all you need to know. In 2013, CBS This Morning spoke with the man who grew up believing he was Paul Fronzak. But it wasn't until he took a DNA test as an adult that he found out he was not the kidnapped baby. I felt the color drain from my face. 
and I started thinking about all these things that everyone takes for granted, like your birthday, how old you are, who your mom and dad is. As for this new development, the FBI tells CBS this morning, our investigation into this matter remains ongoing as we continue to pursue all leads. There is no further information at this time. Knapp says so far the man believed to be the true Paul Franzak has not reunited with his mother. He's torn. As I said, he is a private person. He doesn't like attention. He's been through a terrible ordeal health-wise, and I think he really is concerned about the spotlight. For CBS This Morning, Adriana Diaz, Chicago. I wonder if they, like, ever found this woman. They, they probably have not yet, but I wonder if they ever, or if they will ever find her and, I don't know, statute, statute of limitations, maybe something of note here. So maybe, like, it's been way too much, way too many years since that's happened. But the whole thing with them finding the abandoned boy who they believed was Paul Franzak at first, that's a whole nother story. They found him, like, abandoned somewhere. Like, he was just left there by himself. Imagine what a shock it would be. You're 55 years old. You think you know who you are, you think you know who your family is, and you suddenly get a bolt out of the blue that tells you you are not that guy after all. You're this guy. You're a kidnapped baby, Knapp said. The mystery surrounding Franzak began in 1964 when a woman posing as a maternity ward nurse told his mother, Dora, that she needed to take the baby to see the doctor. The woman never came back, sparking a massive search by the FBI. Basically, what they're saying is, this woman posing as one of the faculty, one of the, well, I don't know if faculty is the right, right word, one of the staff at the hospital, the maternity ward nurse, and they're suspecting that this could be the woman that took Dora Franzak's baby from her. A year later, law enforcement officials thought they found him when they discovered a boy abandoned in New Jersey with ears shaped like Franzak's. The, the Franzak's adopted him and raised him in Chicago. So, I, what I don't understand, if they... Why would they have needed to go through an adoption process? Like, obviously, if it was actually a case where there was evidence that this, like, more than just the shape of the ears, but if there was actual evidence that solidifies that he was their son they wouldn't they wouldn't have to adopt him so the fact that he they they did adopt him which is great 
but the fact that they had to do that is kind of, kind of seemed weird to me. And as a parent, if that happened to me, I'd be questioning why we would have to adopt him. Maybe it's because they did not, they obviously did not do any sort of DNA testing beyond the fact that the ears were shaped the same as the babies. But, yeah. In 2013, CBS This Morning spoke with the man who grew up believing he was Paul Fronzak. My mom and dad pretty much said, you're our son, we love you, and that's all you need to know, Paul Fronzak said. It wasn't until he took a DNA test as an adult that he found out he was not the kidnapped baby. And his, this guy's story is completely different. Because he was abandoned in New Jersey. We have no clue who his actual parents are. I felt the color drain from my face and I started thinking about all these things that everyone takes for granted. Like when you're like your birthday, how old you are, how your mom and dad are, who your mom and dad are. He said. As for this new development, the FBI tells CBS News, our investigation into this matter remains ongoing as we continue to pursue all leads. There is no further information at this time. Knapp said, so far, the man believed to, the, to be the true Paul Fronzak has not reunited with his mother, like it said in the... Exactly what it said in the video. So yeah, this is all very interesting, and I could see how that... Like, it, was, it happened in 19- Breathe. Breathe, Shelby. Breathe. I could see how this would happen. Because, assumingly back in 1964, technology was not as advanced as it is today. So, there was no way of, like, DNA determining- like, accurately having a DNA test that would 100% prove that the kid that they found in New Jersey was the actual Paul Fronzak. But he did become the Fronzak's son through legal means because they adopted him. But... Yeah, I could see how a mix-up like this would happen and come to light to be a big issue this many years later because technology's more advanced now. You can do so much DNA testing with like websites like Ancestry DNA, 23andMe, all that type of stuff. There was just a, so many possibilities to find out what your DNA, what's in your DNA. And yeah.
Alright, in this next segment, we are going to be reading an article from thoughtcatalog.com, and the article is called 33 Unsolved Missing Persons Cases That Will Make You Scared to Ever Leave Your House Again. Let's start this. Alright. Number one, Heather Teague. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm sorry if I mispronounced it. But in the 90s, a girl by the name of Heather Teague was sunbathing on the Kentucky side of the Ohio River near Evansville, Indiana. A witness was watching from across the river through his telescope, probably creeping on her. When out of the woods behind her, a man walked up, grabbed her by the hair, and dragged her back to the woods. To this day, no one knows what happened to her or who took her, although there are many speculations, some very plausible. Number two, Asha Jakia Degree. Asha Jakia Degree was nine years old at the time in the year of 2000. And if she's still alive, since she was not born in 2000, she would have been born in 2000 minus nine. That's 1991. So, she'd be, like, somewhere in her 20s right about now. She packed her backpack with multiple sets of clothes the night before she went missing. Maybe she was going to a sleepover? Because... You need to bring clothes when you're at a sleepover for the next day, obviously. Early in the morning, sometime before 4 a.m., Asha leaves her family home in North Carolina, despite the heavy wind and rain outside. Okay, so maybe she was running away? I don't know why a nine-year-old would need to have a backpack full of clothes leaving her for leaving her house at 4 a.m. I don't know. A passing motor a passing motorist notices her walking alongside the highway and turns around. At this point Asha is observed running into a wooded area. Her backpack is later unearthed from a construction site near where she entered the woods. Asha's body has never been found, so from that statement, they are speculating that she is dead. That's scary. Number three, Tara Calico. And the picture that they have along with it is not very 
it's it's very unsettling. On September 20th, 1988, in Belen, New Mexico, she went for her daily bike ride and never came back. Her mom actually used used to accompany her on these rides, but she stopped because she felt like she was being stalked by a driver. She tried to get Tara to carry Mace, but Tara refused. That day, her mom set out to look for her along the trail and didn't find her, but pieces of her Walkman and cassette tape. If you don't know, a Walkman is like a portable CD player. It's not like an MP3 player, if that's what you're thinking. It's this... And obviously, I think this one played cassette tapes, but I had one that was, I used to have one when I was little that played, that you could put actual CDs in. But a Walkman is just like this portable CD player, cassette player, where you can listen to your music on it. With headphones, sometimes, I think. Yeah. Several people saw Tara riding her bike, which was ne- which has never been found. The bike has never been found, and neither has she, unfortunately. But no one witnessed her abduction, although they did see a light-colored pickup truck following her. This is why I don't go out of my house that often. This is why I stay near my parents. On June 15th, 1989, a Polaroid of photo of a young woman and boy bound and gauged was found in a convenience store parking lot in Florida. The photo was thought to have been taken after May 1989 because the type of film was not available till then. Tara's mom thought the woman in the photo was Tara given a similar scar on her left leg from a car accident. And this photo that they're talking about is the exact one that I said was unsettling on this website. The boy was thought to be the missing Michael Henley also of New Mexico, but that was later, but that later proved to be untrue when, as Henley remains were later found in the forest a few miles from a campsite from which he had disappeared in 1990, so they found the boy that was, that they thought was in the photo, but it turns out it's not the same kid, so there's another missing person case along that could be related to the Terra Calico case. Um, later found in the forest a few miles from a campsite from which he dis- had disappeared in 1990. More photographs have surfaced of a female bound and gauged, but they haven't been released to the public. 
The female in the photos has been suspected to be Tara, but the boy remains unidentified. Number four, Elisa Lamb. Okay, so from what I know of this story, Elisa Lamb was at this hotel. It started with a C. It'll say in the article, but... And there's a video along with this, which I'm gonna play after I explain, and if it has any sort of audio, that's great. But basically, she disappeared for a time but the mis- the mystery part is that a few days or so after she disappeared her body was found in this hotel's water tank thing and they actually found it cuz guests were reporting that the water like was black or something but that's so they decided to go check it out and lo and behold there's Elisa Lamb's body but the thing is I've seen many videos on like of people exploring this exact hotel because of the Elisa Lamb case they cannot figure out how exactly her body would have gotten up there because there's just all these obstacles that are in the way on on top of this hotel where the water tank is. So they're trying to figure out how exactly she would have been taken or gotten up there. But the video that I'm talking about is actually some footage from the elevator she was in while she was still alive. And... It's kind of weird the way she's acting in the video. It's like she's playing that one elevator game that supposedly, from what I heard, takes you to another dimension. And she's seen talking to this invisible force or someone off camera. So I'm going to play that video for you now. If it'll load. Okay, so the elevator door opens. There's no audio. Elisa Lamb comes in and she is pressing a few buttons from what it looks like. She pressed maybe five buttons, four buttons. She's standing in the corner. She sees something off camera. She pokes she poked her head out and looks around. And she looks like she's maybe trying to hide from something and then she peeks around goes out of it's kind of in the doorway of the elevator just looking and looking then she steps out slowly very very slowly and then she steps back in back out again to the side of the elevator door. You can kind of see her a tiny bit. Maybe just like her arm and her skirt. Then supposedly she is talking to something, someone off camera. I don't know, you can't really see her 
but she's stepping back in the elevator. Pressing more buttons. And pressing more buttons. Even more buttons. <laughs> but then she steps back out of the elevator. And this, you could clearly see at this part of the video, she's like feeling around or something. She's talking to some force that we cannot see, something, some, some person off camera that we cannot see. But people have speculated that she was playing the elevator game and that she actually mentally maybe succeeded in going to this other dimension, but physically she is still there. Like, in the hotel. And then she kind of wandered off camera. We can't see her anymore. Um, then it's just nothing, and the video footage is, like, really pixely, too. Which kind of doesn't help. I don't know, with all the just video footage- oh, the door closed. The door closed and she's not in the elevator. Um, with how long of video- oh, the door opened again. With all the video footage of just the elevator and the doors closing again. As I'm trying to say with all the video video footage of just the elevator being empty. It kind of makes me feel like there's going to be a jump scare there at some point. But this door, elevator door has opened and closed several times and it's opening again. Which... It's on the same floor, and it's closing again. And that's the end of the video. But now I'm gonna read the article. Elisa Lam, the, sur the surveillance video of her right before she died is extremely disturbing. Yeah, I've, I don't remember that part of the video where the elevator door just keeps opening and closing and opening and closing from seemingly the same floor. Basically, the girl stays alone in downtown LA hotel. It's like... It's not Hotel Cicero, that's from a music the musical Chicago, but yeah, I'm at, I actually have to go into this, the next segment, because it's that interesting, but it was in a downtown LA hotel, she disappeared, then someone complains the water is gross, like it's black, it's smelly, Smells like possibly a rotting corpse. To be literal. And so the 
employee goes up there, an, em an employee, not... So someone goes to figure out what's happening with the water, and they find her body inside a rooftop water container. And that's why the water is black, because she, her body's in there decaying. Ugh. Locked from the outside. So she did not get in there herself. Some, some person, some force, maybe, some supernatural force was able to get her body or her in there and lock it from the outside. Then they find and release security camera footage of her in the hallways and elevators that show her behavior super strained the night of her disappearance. And it never shows anyone else near her. And to this day, no one can solve how she died. It, it will forever be known as the mystery of Elisa Lamb. Number five. The Yaba County Five. Yaba County Five, or the Yaba, the Yaba incident, that has been called the American Dyatlov Pass. In 1978, five friends with intellectual disabilities ended up driving into the wilderness for no apparent reason, and four of their remains were later found in in the woods they drove in to. So one of them is still out there, maybe? One was extremely emaciated and had taken a long time to die in a ranger's cabin where food and other essentials were readily available. The others were outside and not enough and not enough was found to, de to determine how they died. They didn't leave even though their truck was still functional. I can't find any theory anywhere even attempting to explain what could have happened to them. What I'm thinking is why were they in a ranger's cabin? So many questions. And where is this fifth person? Because it sounds, it says they only found four of the remains. So either one of the remains is hidden or someone, one of the friends possibly escaped and is out there still living somewhere. Or it could be possible that the fifth friend was the one who committed the crime, maybe. Possibilities, possibilities. Number six, the lost girls of Panama. 
the Dutch girls who went missing in Panama is both creepy and mysterious to say the least. This is a great read, but also a sad story. I haven't read it in some time, but I think they had determined that they had gone off the trail and possibly one of them had fallen and gotten injured. The other girl went to go find help and had and had when it got dark. All she had was a camera to light her way. So the story has some pictures of darkness in a jungle that are unsettling. Extremely creepy and sad as they both most likely died of exposure, but there has been speculation of a malicious actor in the case. And I might just have to check that out, check that one out too. Hold on, I'm gonna pause. Okay, so now we're on this website um, called thedailybeast.com and the article is The Lost Girls of Panama, The Full Story, Death on the Serpent River. The mysterious death of two young tourists in Panama puzzled examiners and shocked nations on both sides of the Atlantic. That has been two episodes so far that my phone has gone off during recording. Yeah. Now, secretly leaked documents reveal what happened. The Daily Beast brings together here all three parts of its investigation into the fate of Chris Chris Kremers, 21, and Lisanne Froon, who went out for a brief hike near a mountain resort in Panama in 2014 and never came back. Were they victims of a tragic accident or a savage crime? Amid what seems conflicting evidence and botched police work, theories have proliferated some of them even involving the occult. Now, thanks to a trove of documents and photographs revealing hitherto unexamined aspects of the case, we have been able to offer fresh insights into what happened in this celebrated mystery. Ah, the rest of it is members only. Grr. So we can't even read it. Well, that was a waste of a search, then. Alright, that was me reading the articles of the Chicago baby kidnapped 55 years ago, and supposedly they found the actual guy and 33 unsolved missing people stories as well as a tad bit about the lost girls of panama i did promise that there would be an elisa lamb segment but we have unfortunately put too much time about an hour or so 
into this episode already. So that will be for another episode. And that's all for now. I'll see you guys next time. You guys have a great day, a great life, a great whatever. Stay safe out there and I'll see you next time. Bye! Alright, so that was a waste of a search time. Since I would have to pay a fee to become a member of this website. So you guys can maybe go investigate a little to see what actually happened. If there's any leaked news out there that tells of what happened to the Lost Girls of Panama. Or you could have it remain a mystery to yourself. But anyways, number seven, Brandon Lawson. He ran out of gas on the highway in the middle of the night and called his brother to come help him. Shortly after, he called 911 and reported that someone had chased him into the woods and that he needed police. Eventually, his brother and one police officer arrived at the scene and find his truck abandoned, but no sign of Brandon. Brandon calls his brother and says he's bleeding and is ten minutes away from his truck. That was the last anyone ever heard from him, and searches of the area turned up and turned up empty. So if the last call from him was saying that he was bleeding, it depends on how much blood was being bled. This could be a case of they can't find the body. There is a slight chance that somehow he may, might be still alive. I want to be hopeful, but I don't know. Eight, Susan Powell. I remember reading about the disappearance of Susan Powell in a similar one of these threads a few months back. It's a wild story. Husband and wife with two young sons have a bad marriage. He's abusive and controlling. Plus, at one point, they had to move because the husband's father was in love with the wife. That's a crazy story. Things get so bad, she starts fearing for her life. Then one night, the whole family disappears only to have the husband come back a few days later saying that he and the boys went camping and he had no idea where the wife was. As the investigation into what happened to this wife goes on, the husband acts more and more suspiciously, eventually moving with the kids to live with his father that they moved away from in the first place but then lost custody of the kids 
because the father got caught with a bunch of child porn. And hundreds of creepier shots of Susan, who is the missing wife. Which puts him even deeper. It puts him even higher on that list of suspects. Like, there's more evidence against him now. Finally, during a supervised visit, the husband grabs his son, sons from the social worker, holds himself up inside his house, and then blows it up, killing himself and both the boys. And all while they never solved the mystery of what happened to Susan Powell, and she is still listed as missing. Although presumed murder and dumped somewhere by the husband. It's a sad, crazy tale. That just breaks my heart. You gotta be real selfish to do that to anybody and in all three cases of in all the cases he killed himself his kids and possibly his wife <sighs> let's just move on Number 9. The Jameson Family. The Jameson family, consisting of two adults, one young daughter, was interested in purchasing a plot of land in Oklahoma. They drive out in their pickup truck to, f to check it out. The truck is later found abandoned. $32,000 cash found in the truck, along with the Jameson's IDs, wallets, mobile phones, and a GPS. The family dog was also left in the truck and was extremely malnourished. Poor thing. A camera is discovered. The final picture was of their daughter, six-year-old Madison, who looks somewhat distressed. Security footage is uncovered, with the family appearing trance-like and not speaking to one another. The Jameson's skeletal remains are found years later dumped less than three miles from where the pickup was originally discovered. Remains show no signs of struggle. Wow. Either they did this to themselves or possibly some supernatural stuff. If they appeared in a trance-like state, it's probably, it may be supernatural. A lot of these unsolved missing people 
mysteries probably have some supernatural aspect to them. With the Elisa Lamb case, and then this one, I mean, most of the missing people stories can be traced back to other people having done that. But some of them are just so weird, like, the details of the stories are so weird that there is no other possibility than for it to be some supernatural occurrence. You know? Like, it's gotta be something not of this world that made this happen. Because a family just does not randomly appear trance-like in a in a video foot in video footage like that. And from what it sounds like of the last picture of the daughter, she was apparently she was she appeared distressed, like maybe afraid. And who took the picture? Was it the parents that took the picture? It doesn't say. It's just so many questions for all of these. Why? What? When? Where? How, even? Like, how did these people die? Why were they appearing trance-like? Who or what did this to them? What actually happened to the Jameson family? Number 10. The Sodder Children. The Sodder Children Disappearance. On Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1945, a fire destroyed the Sodder home in Fayetteville, West Virginia. At the time, it was occupied by George Sodder and his wife, Jenny, and nine of their ten children. During the fire, George, Jenny, and four of the nine children escaped. The bodies of the other five children have never been found. That's weird. The fire was blamed, blamed on faulty wiring. However, one of the jurors involved in the inquest had at one point threatened George Sodder, saying his house would be burned and his children destroyed. So, it was at this time it was occupied but by one, or not one of them, nine of the ten... Four escaped, five are gone, but where is the other one? Is the other one maybe older and moved out? What happened to that one other child? We might find out later on in this article. Who knows? The Sodders continued to question the official findings about the fire. 
They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages, when the power should have gone out. This kind of proving that this juror just may have been the one to do it. That, along with the threat. A telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone line had not been burned throughout in the fire, or through in the fire, as they initially thought, but cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb 14 feet up the pole. A missing ladder belonging to the Sodders was found at the bottom of an embankment soon after the incident. A man whom neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was identified and arrested. He admitted to the theft and claimed he had been the one to cut the phone line, thinking it was a, it was a power line but denied having anything to do with the fire. However, no record identifying him exists, and why he would have wanted to cut in any utility lines to the solder house, specifically the solder house, from what it sounds like, while stealing the, stealing the block and tackle has never been explained. Jenny Sauter also had trouble accepting Morris's belief that all traces of the children's bodies had been burned completely in the fire. From what I can assume, or from what I know, skeletons are not exactly able to burn as well as like other parts of the body like so there would have still been skeletal remains so jenny Sauter has done some smart thinking on this many of the household appliances have been found still recognizable in the ash and local crematoriums supported her theory the trucks, the trucks' failure to start was also considered. George Sauter believed that they had been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line for some odd reason. The only bone fragments ever found on the site were a few human vertebrae vertebrae fragments, although these were confirmed to have never been exposed to fire. Which, from what it sounds like, creates a whole nother mystery. Where are these human bone vertebrae fragments from? And how have they never been exposed to the fire when the house burned down?
Number 11 is Rico Harris. I gotta get a drink real quick. Rico Harris. He was a massive six foot nine former Harlem Globetrotter basketball player who had drug issues earlier in his life, but had made a full recovery and was getting his life back on track. He was driving along California's Interstate I-5 from his home in Southern California to Seattle to live with his girlfriend at the time. He was somewhere just north of Sacramento, exhausted, and told his girlfriend over the phone that he wanted to check out the mountains. All calls stopped since then. His car was found a couple days later by a patrolman near a rest stop in the mountains. A massive search was launched, no signs of him. The strangest part, a driver later reported seeing a massive six foot nine individual walking, wandering down the highway just a mile from where the car was found a week later. A search was relaunched. Massive size 17 footprints were found in the ground that were not there before. They were getting very close and then nothing. No trace, no body, nothing. Where did Rico go the first time he disappeared? Where was he for an entire week? And where he did he disappear to again? The fact that someone could disappear twice is what makes this so dang mystifying to me. Number 12. Angela Hammond. Angela Hammond, while driving home, she stopped at a phone booth to call her fiancé Rob and described a creepy-looking man in a pickup truck in the parking lot. Her fiancé suddenly hears Angela scream and drives into town to check on her. He passes by a pickup truck and sees Angela struggling with an unidentified man, but after attempting to pursue a pursuit, the transmission on his truck gives out, and this is the last anyone ever sees of Angela. She still hasn't been found and went missing in 1991. Who? I'm wondering who the man in the truck was. Was he looking to just kidnap any girl or was it specifically Angela Hammond? I'm not read. These are my own thoughts when I say that. But, like, seriously, who is the guy in the truck and will they ever find him? Nobody knows that. Number 13, Stacy Aras. And the I'll be honest, the picture of her face kind of disturbed me at first, but I did not I kind of con 
kind of knew it was a human face, but it's just so black and white and in your face, but it's not as disturbing now. Sorry if that was taken as an insult. I did not mean to insult anyone. The Stacy Aris disappearance. It was in the afternoon on July 17, 1981, when a group of six plus Aris and her Aris and her father rode into Sunrise High Sierra Camp on horseback. The camp sits 9,400 feet above sea level and is regarded for its historic significance. Being the final stop in Yosemite's Mountain Chalet Loop. It was built in 1961 to make backcountry and luring destinations for tourists. Offering stunning wilderness vista vistas but also creature comforts like showers and reasonably comfy beds. Aris told her family that she wanted the photograph of, to photograph a nearby lake. It wasn't terribly far, just over a bluff. He declined to accompany his daughter, 14 at the time, but an elderly man from their group would tag along. At some point, the 77-year-old man grew tired and sat down to rest. Aris, seemingly determined to reach the water, trekked onward. Not a smart move to go by yourself when you could possibly go missing like that. Back at the camp, the group's tour guide remembered noticing her from afar. She was standing on a rock about 50 yards south of the trail. According to a summary of her official cold case file, that was the last time anyone saw Aris, or the last time anyone is known to have seen her. She vanished that day, without a trace leaving only her camera lens behind. Fourteen, Amy Lynn Bradley. She was on a cruise with her family. She was last seen asleep on the balcony of the cabin and was seen earlier in the night with the band on the cruise. She was reported missing shortly after the cruise docked. There were no signs of her on the ship or in the ocean. The ocean is very deep and very wide, so it was possible that they only searched a s small sections of the ocean. So there is a possibility that she is still in the ocean somewhere has not been found by anyone. There were possibly sighting there were per bleh. Hmm. There were possible sightings of Bradley Kirkeo in Kirkeo. I don't I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name in of a place right. 
but it was in 1998 and 1999. Two Canadian tourists who reported seeing a woman resembling Amy on a beach in Kirkeo in August 1998. The woman's tattoos were reportedly identical to Bradley's. Bradley's tattooed tattoos included a Tasmanian devil spinning a basketball located on her shoulder, the sun placed on her lower back, a Chinese symbol located on her right ankle, and a gecko lizard on her navel. She also had a naval ring. A member of the Navy stated that he saw Bradley in a brothel in 1999. He claimed she told him that her name was Amy Bradley, and she begged him for help, explaining that she was not allowed to leave. I find it freaky just because of how terrifying human trafficking is. 15. Juan Martinez Juan Martinez disappeared while on vacation with his mother and father, who was a truck driver. His dad was carrying a load of 20,000 liters of sulfuric acid on the route to a chemical plant or something similar when he somehow started driving erratically down a long declining road. The truck Juan was, cra- was on crashed into another truck, spilling the sulfuric acid and killing both of his parents. Juan, however, was not found after the accident, and no sulfuric acid doesn't dissolve everything. So something should have been left of him, but nothing was ever found. And from the picture, in this picture, he appears maybe 16 or so. But it's been a while, probably, since this has happened. So, yeah. 16. Jalik Rainwalker. He disappeared from the home of his adopted parents in upstate New York about 10 years ago. Lots of shifty behavior from his adoptive father, an off-the-grid paranoid hothead. Weird notes sent after his disappearance. Also, that name is Pure Jedi. Seventeen, Maura Murray. I always found Maura Murray to be unsettling. Not the person herself, the story, of course. Maura Murray, born May 4th, 1982, disappeared on the evening of February 9th, 2004. After a car crash on Route 11, or 112. In Woodsville, New Hampshire, in the village of a village in Haverville. 
excuse me. Her whereabouts remain unknown. She was a nursing student completing her junior year at the University of Massachusetts Amherst at the time of her disappearance. On the afternoon of Monday, February 9th, before she left the university campus, she emailed her professors and work supervisor writing that she was taking a week off due to a death in the family. This claim could not be cor corroborated by her family. At 7.27 p.m., a local woman reported a car accident on a sharp corner of Route 112 adjacent to her home. A passing motorist who also lived nearby stopped at the scene and asked the woman driving the car if she needed assistance. She declined, claiming to have called roadside assistance. Upon arriving home several minutes later, the motorist reported the accident to emergency services. At 7.46 p.m., law enforcement arrived at the scene, but the woman had disappeared. Did she do it intentionally? If so, she was able to avoid law by just minutes. And if it was someone else, who did it? They were able to avoid law by just minutes. Number 18, Jennifer Kessie. She is an interesting one. And for me, it's local. They found her car a couple blocks from where I live now. Basically, in 2006, Jennifer Kessie, or Kess, I think it's probably Kess, Jennifer Kess was last seen leaving work on work one evening. evening. She talked to her boyfriend on the phone that night around 10. Then the next morning after she failed to show up to work, it was discovered that she was apparently abducted either from her apartment or its parking lot shortly before work. They found her car in a nearby parking lot later, but no sign of Jennifer. There wasn't much to go on until a security camera caught somebody dropping off her car, and the footage of this person of interest is what makes the case so most chilling. He slash she has been called the luckiest person of interest in history. They were caught on camera walking past a gate. And despite the camera being pretty close, the camera only took one picture every three seconds. And his or her face is perfectly obscured in every shot. Even though it's so close, police still say they can't conf confidently say if the suspect is male or female. There are still there are still flyers up around here for her and I think of her often. I hope someday it can be solved. Number 19. Dorothy Jane Scott. 
the murder of Dorothy Jane Scott, essentially, she was being stalked by somebody who claimed to be in love with her and would not leave her alone. The calls were innocent at first, but became more demanding and angry as time went on. Dorothy, of course, quite understandably became more stressed out and in fear of her life. She had even taken up a self-defense class at a local community center. The last anybody ever heard from her was over 30 years ago. A co-worker had been bitten by a poisonous spider, and she, ha she and another co-worker, also a woman, drove him to a nearby Arizona hospital to receive proper, proper medical help. After everything was all clear, she went back into the parking lot to grab her car and drive to the main entrance to pick up her friends. Except she pulled barreling out of the parking lot extremely fast going the wrong way, almost hitting her co-worker who was trying to make sense of what was going on. She had been on the way to pick up her son, and they found the car she drove on fire in a ditch off an exit of the interstate somewhere in the desert. She was never seen again. Her mother still receives calls from who the police presume is the suspect. The calls discontinued several years ago, prompting theories perhaps the killer is dead or has disappeared. That's interesting. Number 20, Bobby Dunbar. The disappearance of Bobby Dunbar in 1912, his parents took him fishing on a lake in Louisiana and he went missing. Police searched for him for eight months and finally found a man named William Cantwell Walters who was traveling with a boy that resembled Bobby Dunbar. Walters claimed the boy was the son of a friend who had given him custody and that the child's name was Bruce Anderson, not Bobby Dunbar. Investigators and positive ID from the parents determined this was actually the Dunbar's child and gave custody over to them. The town had a parade for Bobby Dunbar's return. During the trial with the Dunbars and Walters, a woman, a woman named Julia Anderson came to defend Walters, asserting this was her son Bruce and she had given Walters custody. The court dismissed her because she had three children out of wedlock. It was 1912. And two were already deceased. The trial being in Mississippi and her being a very poor woman 
from North Carolina, she gave up on fighting the case. Then, nine years ago in 2008, one of Bobby Dunbar's grandparents had a DNA test done. She compared her grandfather's DNA to his own, to his own brother's. They were not related. This is just like the Chicago baby case. Except they have, they actually have not found the actual kid. But, wait a minute. So the, the investigators and a positive ID test or positive ID from the parents determined this was actually him, though. I guess the ID test is, or it's not maybe a test. Maybe they just like looked at the boy and was like, "Yep, that looks like him. He's he's our son." But man, this sounds very similar to what I just read, like, a few segments ago. And we are well into 37 minutes of this recording, but we're going to keep going. It's going to be a long episode. Just like in the Dear David case. 21 Denise Martin. Denise disappeared while playing with her two kids, with two other kids. She was a kid at this point. In the Great Smoky Mountains on a camping trip. While sneaking up to scare the parents, two of the boys went one way while Denise went around another way. The two boys that were together jumped out, but Denise was never seen again. There are some odd factors involved in this case, such as the unkempt man, a man and his son hiking, thought they had seen a bear, but when the father focused on what they were looking at, he believed it to be a man with something over his shoulder attempting to hide in the brush. It should be noted that Denise was said to have a mental disorder and some kind of some kind, but this is still an odd case, nonetheless. Number 22. Brienne Wolgram. Her friends and family haven't given up. It's been almost 20 years now. Please don't let this case slip between the cracks. I find it incredibly creepy because she disappeared without a trace. She was seen with three strange girls the night of her disappearance. And no one has come forward. They also found her car in a ditch. No prints. Nothing. It's a very small town. Somebody knows something, and they're not saying it anything. By the way, all of these stories are submitted from users of this website. 
or of maybe like Reddit or something. I it would say if it was from Reddit, but yeah. So these are all v personal stories from actual people about actual missing people. 23 Ray Gricar. He was the Center County Dis District Attorney Attorney in Pennsylvania, I think is what PA stands for. In 2005, he went on a road trip never to return. His car and cell phone were found in a town between State College and Harrisburg. Huh. His laptop was found ruined by the Susquehanna River. Ugh. But this is all the way in Pennsylvania. Yeah. No one knows what happened to him. Some speculate his disappearance is connected to the Penn State sexual abuse scandal, which came to light in 2011. Number 24, Jacob Wetterling. Everyone in Minnesota knows about Jacob Wetterling. 11-year-old kid out riding by riding his bike with his brother and his friends and this guy comes out with a gun and stops them and makes them all lie down on the ground he sends jacob's brother off running telling him he'll shoot him if he looks back and then gets a look at jacob and his friends before choosing jacob and sending his friend running the way he'd sent the brother they finally found him last year and caught the guy who was responsible after almost 30 years of nobody knowing what had happened. So this is not an unsolved mystery. They found out what happened. But it took like 30 years to do it. I mean, with so much, with as much technology as we have, we can solve mysteries that were that would have been gone unsolved that like happened a hundred years ago I mean it took us almost 90 years to figure out the Anastasia case the Anastasia Romanoff case and we found out that she has been dead all this time her and her brother, Alexi. Number 25, Jody Huesentrup. I might be butchering that name, I'm sorry. A news anchor, she was a news anchor that disappeared in 1995. A public and popular face that most people in the area were, would recognize. 
and she vanishes without a trace one morning after oversleeping and missing work. The striking thing about that one is just how little there is to read about it. After the details leading up to her disappearance and the signs of a struggle in the parking lot, lot at her car, there's nothing, there's just nothing at all afterward. No real updates as far as I know, there aren't any suspects, no leads, and she's still just gone. Number 26, Ben McDaniel. For me, it's definitely Ben McDaniel. He was a scuba, scoop, wow. He was a scuba diver who went missing while underwater in a notoriously hard to navigate cave that only experienced divers were supposed to go in. But multiple experts said that it was unlikely that his body was in the cave, which, which was searched extensively, and nothing of his body was found, obviously. His parents kept hiring people to go into the cave and look for his body, because that's where he disappeared. That's possibly where he would have been, maybe. And one of the search and rescue divers actually went missing and was never found while looking for him. So this is a case of two missing people. One was the diver that went into this cave in the first place, Ben McDaniel. And the next was a guy that was trying to help find him. There's a theory that he faked his own death and to get out of financial trouble, but employees definitely saw him dive underwater. Also, the owner the owner of the Vortex of Vortex Springs, the diving area where he went missing, died under suspicious circumstances a year later, and McDaniel's parents are convinced that it had something to do with what happened to their son. I don't know. It's never sat right with me. Twenty-seven, Mayumi Arashi. I'm personally perplexed by the disappearance of a Japanese woman named Mayumi Arashi. The 27-year-old left her house stating that she was going to meet a cer certain classmate of hers and never returned. Her older sister, Yoko, later checked with this classmate who stated that such a meeting was never promised and thus never happened. Her whole family started searching for her, but to no avail. There was an investigation which pinned a guy called A as the prime suspect. This was due to another note that Mayumi left stating how she had been betrayed and was sorry. 
In addition, Yoko stated that she had received a call from A, who claimed to have met Mayumi that afternoon she disappeared and wanted to be in jail if Mayumi ever turns up dead. The day after Mayumi's disappearance, police tailed A and found him entering a mountain or a foresty place or something carrying two can foresty place or something carrying two cans of juice. The police then lost track of him. So he was entering some mountain or foresty place and supposedly he was carrying two cans of juice. Why just two cans of juice? Is what I want to know. Now, it would seem like Mayumi's family, especially her sister Yoko, were extremely cooperative in helping the police and that A was the prime suspect. This case blew up over the internet after an interview with the father. A news station went to interview the family over this case. And upon an interview and upon interviewing the father, many internet users spotted a mysterious note posted on the wall behind him that the news crew failed to catch. The note in Mayumi's handwriting said do not trust, don't trust what Yoko says. So, the sister could have something to do with it. Number 28. Lauren Spearer. A 20-year-old affluent Jewish East Coast college girl going to school in Indiana is out with her friends drinking and partying and never comes home. Her boyfriend reports her missing the next morning. The last guys she was known to be with all clammed up and lawyered up almost immediately. Her boyfriend, also an affluent East Coaster, packs up and moves shortly after her disappearance. Several theories have arisen and been investigated, but none have shown strong enough links to proceed. Local rumors is that she OD'd and the people with her freaked out and drove south and dropped her body in the Ohio River. 2020 did a follow-up recently that covers it pretty well the case. That is. 29. The Lost Boys. On St. Patrick's Day in 1995, in my hometown of Pickering, Ontario, six teenage boys went missing. They were doing some drinking that night and got the idea to go down to the local marina and steal some boats. They took two small boats out onto Lake Ontario, and they were never seen again. They on the only item never. 
The only item ever found was a gas can from one of the boats, and it was found near New York State. No bodies have ever been recovered. Not a single article of clothing in neither of the boats. The search for them was extensive, spanning from the U.S. all the way up into northern Ontario. People speculated that they ran away, but there was no evidence to back that up. To this day, to this day no one knows what happened to them. 30. Mary Marshall Lands Mary Marshall Lands disappeared from her apartment March 12, 2004, and no one has seen her since. I remember growing up and seeing the billboards around town about her disappearance, but I didn't really know the extent of it until I got older. Her then-boyfriend at the time had been living with her and was the last one to see her before she left her apartment around 10 p.m. The couple apparently had an argument which caused her to leave to take a walk. She left her keys, wallet, and cell phone in the apartment and took her empty purse with her. Her boyfriend had been known for abuse in prior relationships, which caused him to be the main suspect in the case. After her disappearance, the entire town got behind the search effort, but nothing was found. The family of the boyfriend owned and operated a pig farm, which is known to be known around town to be Mary's final resting place. The farm was searched, but nothing was found. Though pigs are known to eat, eat to even eat bones. After years after her disappearance, her then boyfriend was sent to six years in prison for holding his then girlfriend against her will as well as sexual abuse. Despite this, the local police have yet to discover any information or evidence that can pin him to the crime, the crime of the missing Mary Marshall Lands. The police continue to dig through evidence and hope for any information, as the town she went missing from is extremely small. The private investigator hired by the family believes that her remains are within 10 miles of the fountain in the middle of town. This one hit home for me as I grew up in that area and now personally know the family through business end of, our, end of wars. It's scary and tough for me to see them deal with her disappearance. It would be it would be difficult for any family to go through that. To have a member of their family just disappear. Simply like wiped off the face of the earth just like that. And sometimes 
they're found, but sometimes it's not that they're found alive, unfortunately. It's interesting for me to read all these stories, but I just can't imagine what these families went through and are continuing to go through to this day, not knowing what happened to their their family member, their daughter, their cousin, their mom, whoever these people are to them. 31. Lars Mitank. He went to Bulgaria with his friends, got in a fight, and was injured, so he couldn't fly back when they did. He called his mom once they had all left, saying he thought he was being followed and he was going to book a plane the next day. He was last seen on CCTV footage, heading into the airport carrying his suitcase. Next thing, he's running out of the airport at full speed without his bags. He was never seen again. Number 32. Emanuela Orlandi. In Italy, there's the mystery surrounding Emanuela Orlandi's disappearance. She was a young girl who randomly disappeared near her house and was never found. Despite many reports of her being seen in different places, it's especially creepy if you consider that her father worked for the Vatican and the family resided in the Vatican City but all Secret Service involvement was handled by the Vatican and kept undercover. Moreover, she was linked to a series of different political happenings, most notably either an involvement of the Vatican with the Mafia and her father or as a pawn to free Mehmet Ali Agaka. I think it's pronounced, there's no extra A between the G and the C, so it's probably Ag, Agka, I don't know. The Turkish man who shot Pope John Paul II. Her remains were never found and people keep con- coming up with anonymous testimonies which have never yielded as a result. Wow. And last but not least, 33, the Springfield Three. The Springfield Three refers to an unsolved missing persons case that began on June 7th, 1992, when her friends Suzanne, Susie Streeter, and Stacy McCall 
and Streeter's mother, Cheryl Levitt, went missing from Levitt's home in Springfield, Missouri. All of their personal belongings, including cars and purses, were left behind. There were no signs of, of a struggle, except a broken porch, porch light. There was also a message on the answering machine that police believe might have provided a clue about the disappearances, but it was inadvertently erased. The 1997 Robert Craig, Craig Cox, a convicted kidnapper and robber, claimed that he had knew the women had been murdered and that their bodies would never be recovered. Neither their whereabouts nor their remains have been discovered. So if this Robert Craig Cox guy... Can the convicted kidnapper and robber knew this. Maybe he's the one that committed the crime? Unless he was in jail the time of the when this happened. But anyways, that this is a long segment. About an hour long, this is going to be a long episode. So... That's going to be all now. Alright, so that was me reading the articles about the Chicago baby kidnapped 55 years ago, and as well as 33 unsolved missing persons cases, a few of them actually being solved that were on the list. And a bit about the Lost Girls of Panama case. And that's all for now. I will maybe go into the Elisa Lamb case since I find that to be really interesting because the video is super disturbing. But I will probably go more into that next episode. So, I want you guys to have a great life, a, a great day, a great life, a great whatever. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you next time. Bye!